Well, let's do this. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in, uh, do our, our normal thing here, look at the themes, and, and pull out a few truths from, uh, from these chapters. Um, let's start with prayer. Lord, we love you. We're grateful, again, to, to gather in your name, to, to look at the book, and, and uh, try to be shaped by it. Lord, I just pray you'd be among us, Father. You you have appointed preaching, you've appointed teaching to be a, a, a method of, uh, of keeping your saints, Lord, and it's, it's a strange thing. I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, and yet you, you've called men like me to prepare and to, to study the Scriptures and to speak them, Lord, and, and then somehow your Spirit comes and, and brings power and, and convicts hearts, and um, it's all you, Lord. The good stuff is all you, um, and so I just pray you do that this morning. I pray that you would soften our hearts, make us receptive to what you want, might want us to see. I pray that these things you've laid on my heart to share would be um, would be would be seen clearly, Lord, and your word would go forth with power and and do what it needs to do in our lives, Lord. We we need you. Uh, we always need you. And uh, this morning, would you nourish us with another meal, another dose of of your good daily bread for us? So, God, our time. It's your name. We pray all these things. Amen. All right, um, this week we uh, picked right back up where we left off last week. I will say that the next few weeks, here we are, week eight we just finished up. We only have two more weeks of study left, uh, which housekeeping-wise, in case you missed that memo last week, there's no men of the word next Wednesday. Everybody got that? So next Wednesday you can turn your alarm off for one week uh, and sleep in, enjoy it. Um, I'll be on spring break. I know many of you will be as well. So we're going to pause uh, that week, and then we'll come back for two final Wednesdays um, there beginning on the, the, the 12th. Um, I'll send out reminder emails so that you, you have that. But, uh, but all these weeks, we're tracking with Paul as he sort of finishes up his uh, missionary work. Um, so he was arrested. You'll remember last week ended, week 7 ended there in chapter 21 with him being uh, arrested with this mob happening in Jerusalem. He's finally made it to Jerusalem. He's compelled by the Spirit to get there. He made it there, but he was arrested. So from there forward, he's in chains. And we sort of call this next journey, uh, the next few chapters, his fourth missionary journey. It's not really a missionary journey because he is uh, not making decisions for where he goes. But, uh, but he, he does go on a journey. He ends up in Rome. Um, he's in chains from, from this moment to the rest of his life. So we're going to track with, with Paul the entire time. T- uh, today we're covering, and everything we studied this week is really just like three days of of history. So a lot happens right after he's arrested, um, and Luke gives us a lot of detail to all that stuff, some good things that we'll, we'll get to see as, as we go through it. But he, you know, you saw it, he's granted the opportunity to address this mob that uh, he, he asked to speak to them, and, and um, amazingly, miraculously, he's able to do so. Um, he shares his testimony. We get that second um, account of his conversion, which is just an amazing story. For all of you who missed Acts Part 1 in the fall, um, I'm so glad you're getting to, to see sort of the dramatic way in which Paul became a believer. Um, but uh, then after that, the, the crowd goes crazy once again. He's almost flogged. He gets out of that. Uh, and then he gets this another witnessing opportunity there before the council the next day. Um, that also goes badly. Another mob breaks out. And so uh, the, the tribune just doesn't know really what to do with Paul. I mean, he's, his job is to keep the peace. Um, and this guy is clearly causing there to be uh, a riot and, and mob mentality, um, and that even becomes more clear as this plot to kill Paul is is unveiled. And so uh, the, our our time this week sort of ends as as the the tribune just sort of gives up on Paul. He doesn't know what to do and how to keep the peace, so he sends him off to the governor, sort of like this is above my pay grade. 
Uh, and, and Paul heads off to Felix, which is sort of the next leg in his journey. Most of it's in Jerusalem. He, he ends up in Caesarea right there as, as uh, our time this week was, was ending. Um, so with that, let's do our themes as we always do. There's the map. This is still the third journey, but, um, but he's down in Jerusalem the whole time, just moves right up to Caesarea at this point. He'll eventually make it to Rome. But um, our themes, as always, uh, all of them, pretty much all of them showed up. Work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, did anybody see anything here? He's, he's not mentioned explicitly once. So, but did anybody see any work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of this? I know I normally just tell you the answers, but... Yeah, Jesus appears to him. That's a, that's a big moment for sure. Um, any, anything else anybody saw? What was that? I, yes, I, I would say I see the Holy Spirit most in this moment in the ways we saw it at the beginning of the book, the beginning of Acts, Acts 2 and 3 and 4, where the Holy Spirit enables witnessing, where He is sort of ripening these moments where the gospel gets presented to people. So uh, if you'll notice, it's, it's actually weird that Paul is able to address this crowd. That's a strange thing, and it only happens because he is an educated man. He's able to speak Greek to the, to the tribune there, and the tribune, he asks him, do you know Greek? Which... He's not just asking there, do you, do you actually know Greek? He's, he's like confronted with, wow, you know really good Greek. You're, you're not just like able to throw around some words. You speak Greek well. You're educated. You're not this Egyptian who's like running around assassinating people. Um, so then when Paul asked to speak, speak to the crowd, the tribune wants to hear what he has to say too. Like this, this guy's surprising him. So the, I think the Holy Spirit birthed that moment. The Holy Spirit gets the crowd quiet so they can hear it. So yes, I think the work of the Holy Spirit is present here, sort of enabling the witnessing of Paul um, in these various moments, um, which brings us to the second thing, witnessing for Christ. Paul gets to do that multiple times uh, in our, our chapter. The third one, development of the church. This one's kind of going quiet for the rest of the book. So we have seen throughout Acts up till now, 20 chapters now of the church being established, uh, planting in new places. Last week we talked all about the church and um, elders over the church and development of of uh, leaders within the church. Um, but from here forward, we're zeroing in on Paul. We're not going to see the, the church in operation much more at all. Um, but the fourth theme, definitely see some of that unity with the Old Testament, salvation history, major development. As Paul, when he's preaching, I see this uh, when he's preaching to the Jews, he very clearly connects Jesus with the Jews. He's, he says repeatedly, you know, it was the God of our fathers who appointed you to see his righteous one. So he's trying to help the Jewish people understand Jesus is the Messiah. It's not, this is not a new faith. He's the consummation of what we've always believed. Um, so sort of connecting again that the, the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament, the unity there. Um, and then the last one, evangelization of the nations. There's plenty of that there. Though we're still in Jerusalem, uh, we're, we're seeing these Old Testament uh, prophecies come true that Jesus came. His own people didn't receive him, so the gospel went forth through the nations. Um, I think that that whole truth is very much displayed here. Um, so with that, let's jump into um, the passages itself. Lots of interesting things playing out here. Um, in fact, as I was reading through, I counted up eight different like vignettes, little conversations that happened, story, stories within this, uh, this two-chapter narrative that we had to cover um, in one week. So a uh, lot, lot going on, but for the purposes of our time, I just want to draw up three, three big points that I want to draw your attention to. Um, if you've got your, your fill-in-the-blanks there, you can, you can uh, track along with us. Number one, the gospel is nothing more than facts until you see Jesus. The gospel is nothing more than facts until you see Jesus. And I see this wrapped up in chapter 22. 
um, there as Paul is giving his testimony. So let me try to unpack this for you. Um, so we have seen Paul's testimony before. That was back in chapter 9 when Luke first tells us the conversion of Saul, the persecutor of the church, into Paul. Um, but now we get a second account of it, and this time it's autobiographical. So Paul is the one speaking. He's telling from his own perspective what happened. And, and uh, the account here is, you know, if you, if you did the questions, you saw this. It's very similar to what you see in chapter 9, uh, totally congruent with, with what happens there. But you do notice in uh, his account here this distinctive sort of Jewish emphasis. He's trying to to, to an audience of Jews, he's trying to point out that indeed there's this unity with the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment of, uh, of, of the Old Testament law. He's, he's seeking to sort of emphasize um, that he also started as a Jew, right? Uh, what does he say? Look at verse 3. He says, uh, he is a Jew. He was brought up in this very city in Jerusalem. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was like a very well-respected um, Pharisee in this in the city. If you'll remember back in Acts chapter five, when did we what do we what do we see Gamaliel doing at that point? You remember his name showing up? This was when um, Peter and John are about to be like persecuted and and uh, and beaten, maybe even killed by the Sanhedrin. They're before the council, and it's Gamaliel, a Jew in the council, who steps up and says, "Men of God, uh, we, let's be careful here." Uh, if, if these men are from God, we might be found to be opposing God. But, but if they're not from God, they're going to fizzle out on their own. But he sort of speaks wisdom and keeps Peter and John from being killed in that moment. So uh, that same Gamaliel is the guy who raised Paul. So not just a Jew, but a righteous Jew and a faithful Jew and, and, a, and a godly Jew. But he was raised by him. He was raised strict manner of the law. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous for God. He, uh, and he, so he's basically saying, I'm, I'm one of you. I... I uh, I was a Jew just like you. And even more than that, I persecuted Christians. Uh, you know, I, I, I persecuted them to death. That's totally congruent with what we saw in the early parts of Acts. Acts 8, um, Luke is describing Saul at that time. And he says Saul was ravaging the church. We sort of took time that week, if you'll remember, if you were here in part one, to, to highlight like that's, that's a weird word to de- use to describe a human. Like, we describe wolves as ravaging. We, we describe sort of, uh, it's, it's not a, a verb that we use for, for people, but, but what Paul was doing, his persecution of Christians was so violent uh, that, uh, that it could be described as, as ravaging, which is, if, if you think about this, you can understand why the crowd got quiet, right? Like, this is really compelling. He is, he is helping them understand um, clearly, I was one of you. In fact, I was even better than you because I was persecuting the Christians. And the point of all that is to make clear, he's trying to draw into their minds the obvious question, so what happened? How did you move from being this, this Jew to a Christian? And he gives the answer right there uh, in verses 6 through uh, 11 specifically. But he says, I saw Jesus. That's what happened. You know, he, he was raised in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. He's not blind to the facts of who Jesus was. He was hearing stories about this prophet out, up in Galilee who was doing all these miracles. He was acquainted with the news of Jesus, and I'm sure he was aware of the fact. We think he was probably a little younger than, than Jesus was, and so uh, I don't know that he was there seeing the crucifixion of Jesus, but he was likely still in Jerusalem when all that happened, so he heard about it. He heard about Jesus being crucified. He heard the reports of the resurrection. He knew the facts of the gospel, um, but you know he didn't believe any of it. He just sort of rejected it all as cold you know, I don't, I don't believe this. I don't believe it's true. But then one day, right in the midst of being fully persuaded that everything he believed was true, 
you know, the gospel's not true. Jesus was a heretic. The miracles must have been demonic. His death was deserved. The resurrection was a hoax. He has all these beliefs, but one day on the, on the road to Damascus, what happens? Jesus confronts him. And suddenly all the facts of the gospel become true to him. And that's, that's what I want to sort of highlight here, right? Like, um, this is how salvation always works. The, the, the gospel uh, message, what, what Paul uh, experienced here on this road, is, is literally what every believer experiences in salvation spiritually. God has to open our eyes to see Jesus for who He is, and then we believe in Him, we trust Him, we, we're saved. It's not just the, the history, the, the facts themselves that save us. It's the glimpse of Jesus that opens our eyes to see Jesus for who He is. You know, the Bible says, at 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about this, that, that God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. That God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring... Uh, to nothing the things that are. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through, through 29. Um, and then it says in verse 30, uh, And because of Him you are in Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He goes on to say in chapter 2, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to Him, meaning the cross is, is foolishness to all of us apart from this intervention from God. What, what I'm trying to help you see here is what Paul was trying to help them see, which is, it's all just facts and things to be debated until you see Jesus in all of His glory, until God opens your eyes, draws you to Himself, and lets you see the beauty of who Jesus is. This is how salvation works. It's what the Bible calls regeneration. It's what the Bible calls illumination. When God opens your eyes to see Jesus as beautiful. And all of you who are Christians in this room, you've experienced this. Like there was some point, maybe you grew up in church like I did, and you heard stories of, of Jesus, you were told about the cross all the way from the beginning. You knew you could even recite all the facts of the gospel clearly. But at some point, God opened your eyes and made you aware of what? Your sin. Made you aware of His just judgment over you. Made you aware that you're separate and distant from Him apart from His saving work in you. That the facts of the gospel didn't just happen. They had to happen because you needed them to. And when all that conviction happens, all that opening of your eyes to yourself and your sin happens, suddenly you look at Jesus and he's the answer. And what, you know, this, this guy that has, has confused the world and people debate who he is and what he did for centuries, suddenly he's beautiful and to be treasured and he becomes your savior. This, this is what the gospel does. It, it's all just facts until, until you see it, until God opens your heart to see it. And, and, and by grace, through faith, you, you are saved. Um, and I think, I think that's exactly what Paul experienced. I think he describes it so well here in, in chapter 22. And I think you see it contrasted with the mob, right? This mob, they're not just Jews. They're Jewish Christians. They're not throwing a fit when Paul's talking about Jesus. They start throwing a fit at what word? Did you guys notice that? The Gentiles. Which means what? What, what is frustrating them? It's not the fact that Jesus saves us. It's the fact that uh, only Jesus saves us. They want Gentiles to become Jews. They still are, are uh, taking confidence in the flesh that, that them as the people of God because of the, the, uh, the, the law, they're the ones who inherited the law, that that's what makes them right before God. But Paul is preaching here, only Christ saves you. Jews will be saved through Christ and Gentiles will be saved through Christ. They don't need the law. This is what, if you go read Galatians, he explains his, his theology in full there. He basically says, we, the Jews, we had the law, and it didn't save us. We needed a Savior, so why would we give the law to Gentiles who need a Savior? 
The law can't save them. It couldn't save us either. That's why they need Jesus. The law was just a guardian to bring us to Jesus. But in Jesus, we have everything we need. Um, and that's, that's offensive to people. The gospel sort of divides people in this way. Uh, but Paul was trying to help them see Jesus is everything. Can't you see this? Jesus is everything. But they couldn't see it. They, they, they were blind to it. They throw a fit when they hear this, and they, they rip off their jackets and start creating this big storm. Uh, they, they hated the message that Jesus is all that they need. Um, so, uh, you know, this gospel of free grace through, fin- uh, uh, through faith was offensive to them. There's a, a point in 2 Corinthians where Paul calls, uh, he says, the message of Christ is an aroma of life, smells like life to those who are being saved, and an aroma of death to those who are perishing. So like here you have Jesus being proclaimed, and here Paul is treasuring him, and, uh, and these other people are reviling him. Um, that's, that's how the gospel works. It's going to divide people into those who believe and those who reject. Um, and it all hinges on, have you seen Jesus? Have you really caught a glimpse of him in your heart? Has God opened your eyes to that? Uh, brings us to the second thing here. The gospel transforms us from hiding hypocrites to redeemed repenters. Um, so let me try to un- unpack this. Uh, when we've seen Jesus, once we've received his grace, like Paul did there on the road to Damascus, you in whatever moment this happened to you, the gospel, when it comes into our life, it it transforms us. We, we know this. Uh, in fact, the whole New Testament, if you study it, one of the things you see again and again is this pattern in the epistles of Paul that, that he writes where he sort of starts off every epistle talking about the gospel doctrine and then he finishes up by talking about gospel character. And his point is basically, if you've received Christ, you're going to become a new kind of person. You're not going to be the same old person. You're going to be something new. Let me just briefly show you a few examples of this. Romans. Uh, anybody studied the book of Romans? You know, greatest... You could say the greatest book in the Bible. That's probably offensive to God because he wrote the whole thing. Um, I love Romans. I think it's so rich. The, the, the clarity of the gospel message and what Christ did on the cross for us uh, in, in chapters 1 through 8 especially, but all the way through 11, uh, is beautiful. Gospel doctrine clearly unpacked for 11 chapters. But then beginning in chapter 12, what does Paul do? He turns to our character. You know, if you've uh, received the mercies of God, you now need to present your bodies as living sacrifices and live to the Lord. He goes on to say we need to love one another and, and care for one another and submit to our uh, authorities and, and uh, don't, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's going to offend your brother. He, he moves from doctrine to character. And, and this happens again and again in the epistles. Galatians, same thing. You read the first four chapters of Galatians, it's theology. It's what is the gospel. And then you move to chapter 5 and it's character. You know, don't walk by the flesh, walk by the Spirit. Don't, revi- don't revile, don't get drunk, don't, don't slander, don't be sexually immoral. Have the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, Ephesians, same thing. Ephesians 1 through 3, gospel doctrine. Ephesians chapter 2 is probably, you know, again, one of the most beautiful, concise parts where the whole gospel is proclaimed. Uh, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing so that nobody can boast. That's Ephesians 2. But 1 through 3, all gospel. Then he moves to... Uh, culture, or not culture, character, how, how it should change us. We should then walk in love. We should, wives, you should submit to your husbands. Husbands, you should love your wives. Fathers, you should not provoke your children to anger. Like he moves into how the gospel should change us. And his point again and again in the New Testament is the gospel should change who you are. That's a pattern we see repeatedly underscores what is true. The gospel changes us. One of the ways it changes us is this right here. From being people who have to hide our sin into people who can confess our sin and repent from it. And I see this so clearly in chapter 23. Look with me, flip to, uh, if you've got your, your Bibles there, it's 142, or, or your notebooks, 142, 143. I want to show you this distinctive contrast 
that I think the Holy Spirit means us to see between uh, Paul and Ananias. Uh, this is not Ananias, the guy who like uh, helped, helped uh, Paul be able to see. This is the high priest Ananias. Um, but here in 23, remember what's happening. This is day two of, of, of our drama uh, this week where Paul, the, the mob from day one is over. But now the, the tri- uh, tribune still wants to understand why this mob gathered. So he's like, I'm going to take you, Paul, into the council, into the Sanhedrin. And, and I want explanation as to why everybody's mad. What is causing this unrest? My job's to keep the peace. We've got to figure this out. So they go in there. And, and the, first, um, the first sort of chronicle of what happens all relates to Paul being smacked on the face, right? The high priest Ananias says somebody strike him. Paul gets struck. And what does Paul do? He yells at Ananias, he, which I just love because have any of you ever been punched before? Like, like the thing that rises up in you? Paul was a man just like us, right? So, uh, so he gets upset. He says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Uh, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet you, contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? So he just sort of uh, responds. You could say it's anger. It probably was a little bit of anger, maybe righteous anger. But, uh, but he responds with this, this uh, word. And then what happens? He immediately is told, hey, man, that's the high priest. Which we know that this was not the high priest back from when, when uh, it's been a while since Paul has been in Jerusalem. So it's very likely Paul had no clue that the guy who he was rebuking really was the high priest. But when he's told, I mean, this is clearly sin. Uh, the, the, the verse he's about to quote is from Exodus 22. It does say, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It was sin for Paul to rebuke the high priest like this, even if the high priest was wrong. It was sinful to do it in this way. You know, the Bible calls us to submit to our leaders. And if we're, if, if we're going to have conversations like this, it shouldn't be the way Paul does it here. So Paul sinned. How does Paul respond to his sin the moment he finds out? He repents. He's like, I didn't know. You know, it, this, is, this is a humble Paul. He moves from like righteous anger to brothers, I am sorry. Uh, it, it, this is honest repentance. He sees his sin and he immediately handles it. Notice the contrast between that kind of spiritual leadership, that kind of character with Ananias in the very next uh, little section here, uh, verses 12 through, through 15. So the very next scene, uh, these Jews have made a plot to kill Paul. They have this conspiracy. Here's how we're going to pull it off. And who do they go to? The high priests and the elders to bring this plan. And, and they go right along with it. They're like, this sounds like a great plan. So Ananias is, and what's he doing in that moment? Your, your questions totally brought this out. What's ironic here? He's willing to kill and conspire to murder someone. What did the Ten Commandments say? Don't, don't murder. So... Here's the high priest who should be the one who knows the law, educates everybody in the law, and yet he's totally willing to push the law aside to meet his own needs. The desires of his flesh are to get this guy silenced, and he's totally willing to uh, excuse his sin, push it away, gladly walk in sin in order to uh, achieve his needs. That's hypocrisy. And this is, this is, I just want to showcase this because I think this is a glimpse of gospel character, the kind of men that we should all become. The gospel, when it saves us, we, our sins get covered, and therefore we don't have to be afraid of them anymore. And we're transformed from these people who have to hide our sins and act like we have it all together and sort of have this mask of Christian, I'm, I'm good, everybody's good, good to see you, brother. You know, that Sunday facade that we can put on. We don't have to have that anymore. We've been saved by faith. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Paul knew this, so it makes him into this sincere man who's able to repent honestly and boldly, which I just want to draw right to the front of our attention, guys. 
Like I want all of us at Emmaus Church, every single person, but especially you as men, to be like Paul's in this scenario, not Ananias's. You've been redeemed. If you're in Christ, the very worst moment of your life, I mean, just draw into your mind your biggest screw-up, the biggest moment of sin that, that you've ever done. Christ has redeemed you. He went to the cross for you. He loved you so much, He went to the cross for that. You don't have to hide anymore. You're not, you're not defined by that. You're defined by the love of Jesus. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued. You can repent and turn and, and confess and walk in true holiness. Ananias has to hide, and I think Satan can convince us to just be these men who, who want to hide our sin, and it's not happening. It's not hurting anybody. We just sort of accommodate our sin and let it keep dwelling within us rather than ripping it out and confessing it. Um, but that's not the way of the gospel. The gospel transforms us from these, these hiding, you know, scared hypocrites into people who can be honest and confess and repent, family. This world is dark. Like, have any of you been tracking with what played out in Nashville um, on Monday? The video footage has all been released of both the, the girl who comes into the school to shoot it up. I mean, they, they've got like three minutes of footage of her driving up to the school, walking through the school. They've released a lot of it. Nothing, nothing graphic on that side, but, but you can watch her. And I'm watching it yesterday, and I'm just like weeping at my computer. Uh, I'm about to put my kids in, in Christian school. There are three nine-year-olds that lost their life yesterday because this deranged person is, uh, had this idea in her head. And, and I hate it. I think, I think it's sin, without a doubt. I think she's culpable, but I think there's... De- demonic stuff at play there. I mean, this is dark. And you might think to yourself, that stuff is only out there in the world. It's not in the church. Family, it's in the church. It's in you. But for the grace of God, there go you. Like, sin is not something small to be accommodated in your life, and I can handle this, and I don't have to tell anybody, and it can just be hidden and covered up. Sin will kill you. James 1 is super clear. Like, the the life cycle of sin, it's a thought in your head that gives birth to sin, there's a gestation period, and then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You can't accommodate sin in your life and assume that it's not going to destroy your life. I sit with families every week whose lives are being destroyed by sin in this church. So I long for you to be men like Paul, who when you see your sin, you confess it. You repent from it. You turn from it. You rest under the grace of Jesus, and you live there. That's what the gospel calls us into. We don't have to hide. There's safety here. So be men like that. I don't know if you're struggling with something. If, you're in the, if your family's about to blow up, you, it will. If, if sin's in your life, it will blow up. What's in the dark comes to light. The Bible is clear about that. But don't wait for it to blow up. Confess it. Come talk to a pastor. Let us, let us help you. Um, I'm taking too long here. Um, number three, gospel comforts us in our darkest afflictions. Um, it transforms us, makes us new. It also comforts us. Uh, I'll just point you real quickly. I'm going to edit on the fly here and move as fast as I can, but um, verse 11 of 23. Um, Paul, he's in chains. He's been, uh, you know, these mobs are not listening to him. It's not going well. His witnessing is not being effective in his mind. And in the midst of of the darkness of his moment, what does Jesus do? He shows up. He shows up in his cell, which is just amazing. In fact, I don't think, I was trying to wreck my brain. I don't think it's true. After Jesus ascends to heaven, the only accounts we have of Jesus reappearing on the earth is to Paul, on the road to Damascus, and then here, where he shows up to him. You could argue John gets a glimpse of Jesus, but I think it was more John was carried in a vision, you know, the book of Revelation, and he saw Jesus in heaven. But Jesus comes down to Paul, take courage. You know, in the midst of this moment, you've testified in Jerusalem, you've got to testify in Rome. He comes to comfort him in the midst of, 
of, of that dark moment for him. And what he does to Paul with his actual words, you know, Paul heard him audibly, saw him visually there. I think we have that same comfort in the, the scriptures. There's so many passages in the Bible that give us this same comfort that God's in control. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't left us behind. He, he, uh, he will carry us through these moments. Um, I made a list of, of several of the, the passages I cling to that bring this kind of gospel comfort to us. Uh, and I'll just email that out because I don't think we have time to go through it all. But, but the, main, uh, the main thing I'd want you to remember is... Uh, is, you know, the Bible, um, these promises aren't true for those who haven't taken refuge in Christ. When you're in darkness and you don't have Jesus, you don't have hope. But Jesus gives us enormous hope. There are promises that He's promised in, in, the, in the Bible that we can cling to that remind us He's in control even when things feel out of control. He's with us even when we feel alone. He, uh, he has plans and purposes for our pain even when we don't see the reasons for it. You know, we often don't get the answers to the afflictions uh, that we'd like. We're all asking the questions when we're in those moments of darkness. Why are you doing this, Lord? What's your purpose? Who, how do you get glory from all this pain? And we don't often get answers in this life. Maybe a few of us uh, get that privilege of having God answer those questions. But we know from the Bible multiple promises here uh, that promise us that God uses all that for His glory. Um, he's got a, a promised treasure for us waiting in heaven um, that we can take comfort in regardless of the pain. So all that, three quick brief applications of, uh, three questions of, of application. Uh, have you trusted in Jesus? Is it all just facts in your head or have you seen Christ and put your faith in Him? Is He your treasure? Has He become like Paul, the treasure of your life? Number two, are you hiding sin? The gospel calls you out, brothers. Call me today. Stay after right now. Don't stay in your sin. It'll kill you. Don't hide. Repent. You're redeemed. You can have no condemnation in Christ. Just turn to Him. And then number three, are you hurting? Take comfort in the promises that God has for us. He meets us in our pain with him, Himself, His presence, His, his promises. Um, and he will work it out. So uh, let's take refuge in that. Let, let me pray for us. Lord, we love You. Grateful for Your Word. Grateful for these glimpses of grace in Acts. And uh, I just pray, Lord, pray for these men. Lord, You've got 40 of us in a room right now. And uh, You have purposes for this word today and I just pray for any who are stuck in sin maybe maybe not even in sin yet but contemplating it there's a there's a something in their life right now that they've been dwelling on there has been thoughts that have been gestating in their in their mind and are about to give birth to sin Lord wake them up give us a clear view of of uh, of Satan's lies help us to see right through them there's no life there there's no there's no joy there there's no satisfaction there Lord it's all death and cause us to be men who run from sin, who forsake it, who confess it, who rest in the gospel. We do not have to hide. We can, we can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So make us real men, honest men, vulnerable men, who take our faith seriously by taking our sin seriously, Lord. And may you cause our families to thrive. May, may our children be raised in houses where they can forsake their sin with us, where they don't have to hide from mom and dad with the things they've done wrong, but they can Come to mom and dad and confess and be led towards repentance. Make us into a gospel people, Lord. That's, that's what you've called us to be. Guide us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.